1: Welcome to the Billboard Chappie Podcast. Gary Truss, Billboard Senior Director of Charts. Gary got a promotion, new title. I think it just means I'm older. And
2: I am uh, still Trevor Anderson, still a chart manager here at
1: Billboard. Does that mean I get senior specials now? Uh, You know, before before six, 10% discount. And this is where we look at why what's on the charts is on the charts. And this week, uh, talking to someone who uh, has been all over the charts in recent years, Justin Tranter, Grammy-nominated songwriter. Uh, just won Songwriter of the Year at the 2018 BMI Pop Music Awards for the second straight year. Also took home four more awards for co-writing hits by and Dragons, Believer, Linkin Park's Heavy, Julia Michaels' Issues, and Maroon 5's Cold. So we're going to talk to... Justin about his songwriting really so much more just a a really fun chat that we had with him so that's coming up we're going to split it into two pieces over a couple weeks really just even beyond his songwriting Trevor one of the things that we found uh, speaking with Justin just how important his social activism is
2: yeah he's um, really somebody who's dedicated to a lot of causes Um, he was even at when he was at the BMI Awards, uh wore a shirt that said we can end gun violence now. So really rallying behind that cause. Um, it's been a big fixture in the LGBT community as well for a number of years. And of course, given the fact that it's Pride Month, uh, you know, that much more appropriate to highlight somebody in that community who's doing major things and uh, making some huge inroads
1: for members of that community. And we'll run down the top 10 of this week's Billboard Hot 100 coming up and our flashback this week, Trevor.
2: We are going to take it back to 2002. We're going to look at a song that was hitting the top five of the Hot 100. This time, 16 years ago. Uh, We'll play a little name game. It's got something very much in common with the song currently in the top 10 as well. And we'll look at a few more
1: examples of uh, some things they have in common. All right. Here's this week's top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100.
0: 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3.
3: Two one It is meant to be, it'll be it'll
0: number be, ten meant to, be, yeah. meant to be It'll be It'll be
3: it'll be if it's meant to
2: Number nine Number 7 i still see your shadows in my room can't take back the love that i gave you number it's 6 why love and i hate you and i cannot change you so i must replace you oh, easier said what i want and i number
3: 5 God's plan God's plan Number four I can't do this on my own hey No hey. Someone watching this shit close Yup yeah, Close I've been me since Scarlet Road Hey, Bro I feel I it like Just Oh he's so handsome Call a mama bell like Michael Can't really trust nobody. All this chewy on you, my roof looks like a no. Show got diamonds by the ball.
0: Oh, come with the tony home, more for clowns and all. That's a real one. in your reflection Without a full number one.
2: Right, we've seen that number one spot change hands a good number of times in the past few weeks. This week, no exception. Uh, we're back to Drake taking over once again with the song Nice For What. This is its seventh time overall, being number one. If you guys remember, it debuted at number one uh, a few months ago. Had that for four straight weeks. Lost out that number one spot to Childish Gambino. Got it back. Lost it to Post Malone last week. Now it's got it back again. So, a uh, pretty rare, you know, three-peat occasion to be number one, lose it, regain it, lose it again, and regain it. Last song to do that was Can't Feel My Face by the weekend. Before that, Bruno Mars Grenade. So, um, you know, pretty rare occurrence that happens only once every about three or four years. Uh, Drake leads what's a pretty tight race uh, in the top three, really, for number one. Uh, Psycho, last week's number one, drops one spot to number two. Cardi B... Bad Bunny and Jay Bolivin at number three, once again, with I Like It. I mean, the points margin between these songs is is just so minimal. I mean, really, any of them had a shot at number one this week, which really sets up next week's chart as one to watch. Um, With all three of these songs pretty firmly established, you know, just the slightest change, just a few streams here, a few radio spins there can make the difference.
1: Well, what's interesting is uh, I like it at number three is up in all metrics this week. Radio airplay sales and streaming. Whereas uh, of the other two songs, uh, nice for what and psycho above it. Uh, only nice for what is up in radio. It's down in every other metric and uh, post Malone psycho is down across the board. So based on momentum so far uh, you'd think I like it has a pretty good chance next week.
2: Uh, I think a lot of people have been rooting for this song. To get to number one. You know, it really, when Cardi's album first came out, felt like it was going to be the song in the summer. I kind of thought maybe it was a little late. That song had been getting streams basically every week. We're, we're 10 weeks in, which in the grand scheme of things is not that late. But well, it's actually,
1: it's as old as Nice For What. They've both been on the chart for 10 weeks, but it kind of feels like I like it's a lot newer.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it does feel like Nice For What because it kind of came in with the bang. The video came out. Um, you know, God's plan had been number one. So there was a lot of Drake at the top. Uh, with Cardi you know the video only came out a couple weeks ago so that gave it some new energy some new life obviously there'd been sort of multiple songs she'd been drip was out there for a little bit be careful was getting radio play so it wasn't like I like it was the only Cardi song you were hearing so maybe that combination is going to work out in its favor and you know it really just feels like the perfect summer song I'm sure if you go down to the block parties if you go to the beach if you go to graduations this is definitely one of the hot tracks to look out for and um who knows? Cardi could have another number one as soon as next week, but she's gonna have some big competition. Yeah, there's
1: another song uh, rising in the top ten, up from number nine to number six this week, and number one in streaming this week. Hits number one in the streaming songs chart. Uh, Juice World, Lucid Dreams goes nine to six, just its fifth uh, week on the Hot 100. One of those songs, Trevor, where are really kind of uh, highlights how there's different audiences right now for for big hits. The song really has almost no significant airplay so far, uh, but number one in streaming. So uh, we've seen some of these viral hits in recent years that absolutely huge on streaming services, but Radio Airplay, it's got a lot of catching up to do.
2: It's, it's been the theme of this podcast for a while. Uh, yeah. with Some of these interviewers, I mean, we see this number, there's something out there that's, that's really working. And um, in particular, if this song... You know, which does look like it has a, a great shot to get to number one in the next few weeks. Is a lot of the stuff at the top is a little stagnant or, or falling down. That would be a big win for SoundCloud rap. You know, to have really the first number one of this SoundCloud era. I mean, it's already, of course, been legitimized as a force with with Gucci Gang and with um, you know songs by uh, Lil Uzi Vert, even going way back. But to actually like have the number one and have that be uh, solidified in history books would be a big, big moment. And I guess speaking of SoundCloud rap, uh, we may see another song from from a SoundCloud rapper back uh, at the upreaches of the chart next week. Um, maybe a little, little too soon to say if it would get to number one, but of course a lot of people really rallying around XXX and Tacion Sad, um, of course, you know. Here we are at taping in New York on Tuesday. You know, one day after we learned that he had been shot and killed down in his native Florida, um, and. You know, as we mentioned a lot of fans rallying around a lot of his music but sad in particular um, you know really really the song that they're gravitating towards uh, the song was a top 10 hit if you remember back earlier this year uh, got to number seven on the Hot 100 so his biggest hot 100 hit and you know I guess given of course the title sort of is appropriate for the mood that a lot of his fans are feeling and um, you know just just the the bouncy kind of catchy probably way they want to remember him and his music. Seems like it's going to have a lot of support um, as we tape this on Tuesday. Number one on iTunes, number two on Spotify. So there's going to definitely be an impact next week.
1: Uh, looking ahead to next week, too, again, we don't have any uh, solid numbers so far, but uh, chance, anyway, it seems that we could uh, see the Carters uh, somewhere up high in the Hot 100 together, certainly on the Billboard 200, as far as we know.
2: Yeah, I mean, of course, you're right, there's another whole other angle coming through is is maybe, is, is ape shit going to do something? Well, you know, The video is out on YouTube, um, as with most Beyonce videos, very well received, a lot of people really liking it. Now that it's out on wide streaming services, so not just as title exclusive, but on Spotify, on Apple, there could be definitely some momentum there. I mean, it seems like for sure the album, you would think, has a a very good shot at being number one. Um, And we know, you know, obviously Jay-Z and Beyonce are forces by themselves, but when they team up, it's usually a world-class event. And um, I mean, it's, it's kind of fun, like even though there's not a song, I guess there's not one song out there that's been racing up the chart or like this this necessarily brand new song that is debuting and about to take over. It definitely feels like this is going to be a good week for
1: charts. How is this going to show up? How is this going to shape out? Yeah, it's, this is one to watch. And with the Songs of the Summer chart uh, just having started, uh, we said before, last year was uh, pretty much no drama, start to finish. It was Despacito's uh, race uh, to win from, from the beginning all the way to the end. It was number one every week. Uh, we're three weeks in the Songs of the Summer chart so far this year. And uh, Drake was number one first, then Post Malone has been number one the last two weeks. Uh, the way I Like It is going, that could uh, jump up. It uh, feels like we finally have a race for Song of the Summer. It's uh, just doesn't look as clear-cut this year as to what uh, the winner could be.
2: And, of course, we know there's so much music that's still to come. Drake's album is supposed to be out before the end of the month. Uh, We know Nicki could possibly be in this race. Her album comes out a little late in August. And, you know, I mean, the way things are going now, anybody can drop an album with just a few days' notice. I'm sure there are going to be a lot more songs out as
1: well. So Song of the Summer could be a song we don't even know yet. Did uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z totally throw off your weekend where you just uh, suddenly had to drop everything because the album came out?
2: Um, it was funny because I actually was at a bar at a bar when the news came through, and so it was like, then somebody just dropped it so casually. They're like, "Yo, did you see Beyonce and Jay Z dropped an album?" And it's just like, "What?" Wait a minute. And then the, you know, it's one of those things that's the best part because we all kind of had heard that there was this project in the works, and maybe it would. And then of course the tour had started. There was no music out, so you kind of you kind of figured well. I mean, she had toured off Lemonade already. He had done it off 444. So, why are we having a tour if there's? Right. But, but then they had done the first dates of the tour. There was nothing new. So you're kind of like, okay, I guess that's, you know, not that I'm mad to see Beyonce and Jay Z live, but okay, there's nothing new coming with it. And then they were like, psych, <laughs> here we go. I bet, I just hope the first people who saw that tour, the first four or five dates, you know, get a refund or a second leg or something because I know they're
1: mad. So they weren't doing any of these new songs those first few days, As dates. far as I know, because, I mean,
2: I, no, I, no, I have watched this. I have not watched the set list because if I go to the tour, I want to be surprised. So right. I, I didn't watch it. I can only assume they didn't because how would that have not gotten around? Yeah. You know, that Beyonce debuts new song at World Tour. I mean, I hope they do something for him. Yeah. Send him a free copy of the album at least. Goodness. Also, one thing... uh Don't want to get lost in the conversation. We talked about it a little bit before when Drake was last number one, but now that he's number one once again, seven weeks, that brings us total to 18 for the year, 2018. How convenient is that? 11 weeks for God's plan, uh, seven weeks for Nice for What? So within 10 weeks of Usher's one-year record back in 2004, Usher was number one for 28 weeks of the year. So with Drake at 18, the year's not halfway over. We know the album's coming. Right. Could that be another record the Six God adds to his resume?
1: And uh, passes Michael Jackson this week, too, for uh, second most weeks at number one among male artists, so 38 to 37. Not every week you can say you pass Michael Jackson for a huge number one record on the Hot 100. Drake does that this week. Uh, he's now uh, getting closer to uh, Usher's overall record among males, uh, 47 weeks, so 47 to 38. And uh, as we said, uh, I think recently, still still a little bit of time uh, before he catches Mariah, who has the overall record, 79 weeks, number one. So if
2: Drake gets 10 more weeks this year, he'll tie Usher for the most in one year, and he'll beat Usher yeah. for the most overall. Wonder if Usher, you know, maybe Usher and Drake, Usher going to call up Drake, try to get a collab going, extend his record a little bit. We'll see.
1: They could do a mashup called Nice and Slow for What? Ha <laughs> All right, let's uh, get to this week's guest on the Billboard Chaffee Podcast, someone who's uh, been all over the top 10 of the Hot 100 uh, for a while now, and uh, the awards are uh, reflecting that. Again, uh, Grammy-nominated songwriter Justin Tranter, who again won Songwriter of the Year at the 2018 BMI Pop Music Awards recently, second consecutive year. Other awards, too, for co-writing Imagine Dragon's Believer, Linkin Park's Heavy, Julia Michaels' Issues, and Maroon 5's Cold. So always love talking to songwriters here on the podcast. It really where a song starts. So what to hear how they come up with these songs. And, uh, Justin does a lot of co-writing. So he really gets into uh, what it's like to sometimes go into a room with someone you've never met before. And suddenly, uh, you have to get really personal and start uh, Flushing that out into a song uh, he's, he's made a career of that and does it uh, uh, At an award winning level So really happy to talk to Justin Tranter Again also about his social activism Such a great interview and actually uh, went so long We're going to split it up over two parts uh, Over the next couple of weeks So uh, here's part one with Justin Tranter On the Billboard Charpy Podcast Justin Tranter, welcome to the Billboard Sharpie Podcast.
3: Hello, how are you?
1: We're doing well. How about you?
3: I am fan fucking tastic. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, we're gonna <laughs> have like that's, that's probably our
2: first bleep on the show.
3: Oh, can't be. You've you interviewed musicians and you've never had to bleep someone out before. Well, I'm honored. I'm honored to be the first bleep. You'll have to it, bleep.
1: <laughs> it's, it's it's not the first, but it's it's probably the earliest in an interview.
3: <laughs> I'm still honored to take that. I, I still like that title. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, welcome, uh, Justin. Thanks so much. So uh, we're saying this is, uh, this is pretty cool. Uh, congratulations. Uh, first off on winning uh, BMI's Pop Music Awards Songwriter of the Year for a second year in a row.
3: Well, thank
1: you. Does it feel feels old hat the second time you win or still, still pretty excited? No,
3: I, th- I think the second time was even more surreal. I mean, I don't know. It was like, it just feels, it's so hard to explain. You know, there's just been to be really honest I've just failed so many times in my life <laughs> so to have um, you know to have to be somewhere the year two years in a row it's I'm just like so grateful and overwhelmed uh, that I don't even really know how to respond to it yet
2: yeah I was gonna say like, like in sports when you ask you know is it harder to win a championship or sort of defend the title the next year everyone's always like it's way harder to defend all the the pressures on you everyone's looking at you so I can I can I'm not a famous athlete by any chance but i can relate to what you're saying
3: yeah it's a little i don't know it's just like it's surreal in a beautiful way
1: so does it set up more pressure for for a three-peat or did it it's not like sports it's it's you're creating art so it's, it's kind of different you, you can't really yeah think that and
3: like for my three-peat i'm, I'm fortunate enough that i have like a bunch of singles coming but they're coming a little too late in the year that I think that it, the pressure's off because there's actually just no way for me to have a 3 feet, I don't think, just because of the release schedule. <laughs> so yeah. um, that's taking some pressure off. I'm like, yeah, there's no there's no way I'm getting three in a row. <laughs> I don't even have to think
1: about it. Uh, does it change your mindset at all when you start winning these awards? Is it suddenly, uh, do you start to think, oh, now, now I have to keep writing hits or I have to, I have to do what I've been doing? Is that, does that creep in at all? Or it's uh, when the art starts happening, it, the process takes over.
3: Yeah, I think for me, my favorite part of writing is just about trying to like find the most urgent thing to talk about in that moment and to find the most honest thing to talk about in that moment because, you know, for the most part when I'm writing, it's very rarely about my life anymore. It's,
2: it's,
3: you know, if I have a, a young co-writer, uh, you know, that, that early 20s uh, intensity uh, can never be rivaled by someone who's about to be 38. So, uh, or if I'm writing with the artist, Obviously, it, I want it to be their story. I want it to be their life. I want them to hopefully love the song so much they take it all over the world and sing it all over the world. And so, um, the, the, all those like sort of like pressures and all that kind of go away the minute you just get in the room. And you start having the conversation about somebody's life and about what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they want. And um, the minute that starts happening, you know, my my creative you know, antennas go up and I just kind of like dig right into the to the truth. Even if it's fun, even if it's like a fun, goofy, sexy song, I'm still trying to find like, you know, the truth in it. So it's all that, that that crazy pressure kind of goes away.
1: That was an interesting point you made about age. You say that uh, there's a very different energy when you're uh, writing with someone who's uh, early 20s as opposed to someone who's uh, maybe been doing this for, for 20 years or so.
3: Well, I just think I, it's not even about how long you need to do it. I think it's just like in the emotional situation of it all like I know when I was writing songs about you know boyfriends or ex-boyfriends when I was 20 it was very serious (laughs) you know like it was these songs had to be written else I was gonna die and like um that sort of like those those emotional extremes you know the older I get I'm just like you know I'd I'd rather die than date so (laughs) those feelings kind of like go away or or the I don't know. I just think when we we're young, it, the, the the creativity is so raw and so necessary that now that I'm older, I have so much joy in kind of helping other people channel their, their rawness and, and try to elevate it and try to focus it the best that I can. It's just a, a different way to look at it.
1: How do you write? I always like to ask that to, to Sangraj. Does, does the music come first, uh, lyrics combination of both? And obviously you work with so many yeah. different artists. It could be, could be a different answer for everybody.
3: Yeah. It, it, it definitely is different all the time. I, I, um, You know, because I do want to make sure that, especially if I'm writing with with the artist directly, I want to make sure they feel comfortable or um, if it is a new collaborator, you know, a new songwriter who's not an artist, just a songwriter, I want to, you know, kind of learn how they do it and kind of get into their world and their realm and just try to make that the best I can. But for me, it's definitely hard to start if I don't know where we're aiming lyrically. Like, I need to know the main lyrical uh, gist of it. I need to know the main story we're telling before I can even really think about what the melody supposed to be or think about any of that. Um, just for my brain, just because it, it's hard to, you know, until we know what we're talking about, how do we know what it should sound like? But that's just for me personally. A lot of people will just go and freestyle melodies or, you know, producers will build out amazing tracks on their own. Um, and so it's, but if I had a preferred way of doing it, that's how it would be. I, I, I like to know where we're aiming lyrically and then go from there.
2: And with, you know, all forms of art, whether it's writing or performing, you know, you can always kind of tweak with it a little bit until someone forces you to stop. How do you know when a song is done?
3: Um, that's a really good question. I think for me, it's like, um, that's one of my strengths is being like, okay, this feels good. That is good. This is done. Um, but you know, I'm not, uh, I don't I do produce, but not often. Norland I'm just writing and, and when I do produce, it's in the old school sense of like, you know, getting, you know, musicians together and players together and blah, blah. blah. Um, but yeah, I, I think for me, it's kind of, I, I just can tell when it's done and it's normally pretty quick, especially if I'm not dealing with the production at all. It's just about like the lyric and melody. Um, I can pretty pretty quickly know when it's done. And normally when the song is good for me personally, it happens pretty quick. At least the meat of it'll happen quick and then maybe a couple of days later you realize you could the pre-chorus could be better or the bridge could be simpler and then you go back and tweak it. But for me like the meat of the song, if the meat of the song doesn't get done in the first couple hours then it's not not worth it.
1: And you've written with so many uh, people, Justin, is it, can you sometimes tell if that connection is, is there, or if you have to fight for it a little bit more or, or, there there even times when you've uh, gone into writing sessions and you just kind of thought this just isn't going to work.
3: I think most writers have those experiences. I'm very fortunate that um, for me, I, I view that, like part of the creativity as sort of like winning the room. Uh, I call it like I'm going to like get everybody to feel as confident and comfortable Um, and excited as possible about what we're doing to hopefully get through the awkwardness and oddness that can be there. Because you are, I mean, you're walking into a room with a complete stranger sometimes. Maybe everyone's a stranger. There could be a whole, you know, the whole room could be strangers. And you're supposed to get, do something that's pretty intimate. You know what I mean? Like, talking about the stuff that we talk about is, is very intimate. And you also, you're having to, you know, maybe suggest something that sucks in front of strangers. And um, maybe something that you think is amazing, but the co-writer doesn't, and then that creates like a weirdness. And um, but I've been pretty fortunate in that I, I view that part of it um, as just as important part of the creative process as actual writing. So for me, I put a lot of energy and uh, experience into making sure that things go emotionally smoothly. If that makes any sense. Hey,
0: you
1: Song by Song, the uh, the four other awards. In addition to uh, Songwriter of the Year, you won uh, four uh, more awards for co-writing uh, these four different songs. So just to uh, go by, uh, one by one, uh, Justin, just kind of uh, talking about the process of how they came together. Imagine Dragons Believer. That's uh, you, know, you write with a lot of pure pop artists, and Imagine Dragons, they have pop elements, but you know, ultimately a rock band, was that different at all? Um, well,
3: you know, I come from a band background, so um, you know I was in the band called Sunny Press Weapons for like 10 years, which is right. like a glam punk band that our last album ended up being kind of like alternative popish, but um which is what led me to pop writing it was just somehow i was naturally leaning there um so i really understand the band dynamic and i understand the the, the how important this sort of um you know when, for, there's something interesting about when you're dealing with a band their fans are in a lot of ways can be a lot more sensitive to like how it genuinely like generally sounds they want it to sound like that band forever <laughs> um and of course you can progress and you can evolve and you should progress and evolve um but i was really aware of how you need to like stay true to that but what's really funny about that song is that me and Matt Men and robin went to vegas to work with with dan reynolds to write you know because he doesn't normally write with people he's one of the best writers alive he writes alone you know um and we went there to write songs Pitch to other people cause he does that sometimes as well. Um, and the first two songs we wrote together, he ended up keeping on his album, which were start over. And then the second song he wrote was Believer. Um, then we went and wrote a lot more and we ended up with four songs in the album and a bunch of other amazing music. And, um, you know, once we got to Believer, I could really, I could sort of tell sonically it was living in Imagine Dragons land. Um, and I could tell that he, he was feeling like this was probably his, just because of the vibe of it and blah, blah. And we like really hammered out the, the chorus together. And then when it got to the verses, when I could tell that it was his, I gave him space. Um, you know, definitely was a good sounding board for everything and, and making sure I was pushing the melodies to be as, as strong as they could and all that good stuff and, and the lyrics, but it was. It was very clearly became his story, and this was his moment. His it was his, his hit. and I, I, for, I very fortunately realized that and didn't get in the way and didn't fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> I just kind of uh let him write the story that he needed to write. So you know, which I think is great because in this song is it, it's really his, and I was just I just was there to to make it the best that it could be. But it, this is his story. Um, yeah, that's how that one came about
1: you mentioned uh, semi-precious weapons and going from uh, you know, being in a band. And I, I know you were uh, touring with Gaga back then at the, uh, the total height yeah. of her pop uh, craziness. So you were part of this whole uh, tour cycle when she was you know, maybe the biggest pop artist in the world. Seeing that up front, did that uh, actually have a reverse effect on you and, and made you think, I, I want to be more behind the scenes. I, I want to be a writer. Maybe yeah. that wasn't really for you.
3: I mean, I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, our band was known for our live show. Like, that's what—that's how we paid our bills. That's how we got any sort of decent feedback from the press. It was never from our records. It was always from the live show, which is funny that now that I'm a songwriter. <laughs> but, um, yeah. the, I mean, I was always writing songs, but now, I, you, know, you know what I'm saying. Um, while it was happening, I loved it, and it was fucking amazing. And, like, you know, whether it was a smaller headline tours or whether it was opening for Gaga or opening for Kesha or any of the, any of the awesome things we got to do. Um, while it was happening, I loved it. But once, you know, I fell into songwriting, uh, for other people. Um, I don't want to say an accident because it was a shit ton of hard work, but the, the initial decision to do it was an accident where, uh, the band was signed to Epic, which was our, which was our third record deal, uh, on Epic. And they wouldn't put the album out. And, uh, the person that had signed us to our publishing deal uh, had left the company and this young, brilliant, amazing woman came in to take his place named Katie Vinton and I went and met with her about the band and, you know, I had sent her the new album that Epic wouldn't put out and she loved the album and her husband was a fan of um, our older albums as well so she was aware of what we did and um, she just said, well, you know, I don't work at Epic Records. I can't help you get your album out sadly, but I work at a publisher and I could put you in sessions to write songs with and for other people. And, uh, I luckily said, yes, let's do that. And I just started going to every fucking session that she could find for me. Um, and so it wasn't that like the artist life I was like, oh, this isn't for me. And, you know, seeing fame up close, I wasn't thinking, oh, this isn't for me. It was more just kind of that was the only opportunity I had left. Um, and obviously, all I really care about is making music and helping that people hear it. But now that I am here, uh, I don't want anything to do with the artist life. You know, <laughs> like touring is fun. The hour you're on stage is really fun. But the rest of the time you're literally, uh, you know, 20, 23 of 24 hours, you're doing nothing. You know, you're traveling or sitting or waiting or sitting or traveling or sitting and waiting. <laughs> and then when you're the singer, you're like terrified about your vocal situation. Right. And, um, it's, it's a lot. So I am, it all worked out. It wasn't like a master plan and nothing, you know, none of it was a reaction to anything that I saw. it was just kind of, this was the option. And, uh, I like to work insanely hard, and this was the only option I had to work at, and I am fucking grateful.
2: Well, I think it worked out pretty well, if I have to say so myself. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I am not. I am not complaining. I promise. I am not complaining. Uh,
2: two questions, just based off uh, something you talked about earlier. Uh, one thing that you mentioned is you said uh, basically these days there's at least three people writing in the room together. Um, you yeah. know, you know, a lot of. Uh, pop purists you know uh rock purists would would argue you know that's that's what's the problem with music is there's too many songwriters the songs are too you know they don't yeah. they don't stand out they don't have you know enough flavor uh what is what's your response to that when people say you know there's too many cooks in the kitchen making songs these
1: days uh
3: my response would be those people are fucking idiots um <laughs> the- <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of that's based in misogyny. Uh, A lot of times they're speaking on female pop artists who have a lot of Um, co-writers. So that's just like it's based in their idea of a genius as someone who sits alone in their room and is tortured and writes a song by themselves. Um, So I think that that, that's sometimes part of the conversation, not always, but that's sometimes part of it. Um, And then I think the other part of it, too, is that things are just restructured differently uh, now, where... Back in the day, a producer wouldn't get publishing. Um, back in the day, if you if if, a, if you hired a guitar player who came in and wrote an amazing riff to your song, they wouldn't get publishing. Um, so now I think that you know everyone's getting a little bit more respected for what they do, and so you'll end up seeing all these different names on on a, on a on, you know on the songwriting credits. Which before it'd be like. You know, oh, well, this person wrote the chords and they wrote the lyric and melody. So it's just, it's only their song. But now it's like, well, no, if you, if you, if you make a beat to that chord and melody that's really hooky, you're going to get publishing. If you write a riff to that, to that chord and melody that's really hooky, you're going to get publishing. So I think it's just the, 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 the landscape of how people are credited has changed. And, um, I think that people just want any excuse to be nostalgic and hate. Um, the future. <laughs> so, um, that was my not-so-subtle answer to that question.
2: <laughs> yeah, that No, that is great. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> t- kind of linking off with that, another argument that, that's come up in the past couple of years in particular, is, as pop music and the number of artists continue to grow, is a lot of people think that, you know, if you look at the writing credits on a lot of songs, a lot of artists get credit. And a lot of people have big reservations about whether certain artists—I'm not going to, you know, name particular names—but they yeah. get more credit on a song than they actually contribute. As someone who's been in the room right. with a lot of artists who, you know, get singer-songwriter credit, what percent of artists, or, or how many, actually do contribute and get the right—the ratio is right between what they're credited for and what they actually contribute. Yeah,
3: I mean, you know, that's a really really tricky question. You know, the, the majority of artists that I've been in the room with, you know, if they're, if they're actually in the room and they're writing, they're writing, you know, even if they're not, um, they would you know, they would never, they wouldn't identify as like a full on, you know, superstar songwriter. They, it, it's still their story. It's still their vibe. It's still their essence. It's still their direction. It's still, it's still the creation is based around them and they're in the room and they're a part of the process. And so they 100% deserve writing credit. And, uh, you know, of course, when you have writers, like, you know, i have been fortunate enough to, I was, you know, with Gwen Stefani this morning and that woman obviously writes her ass off, but you know, she likes, she likes the process of collaborating. And so I, I am lucky enough that I get to go and collaborate with her, um, at 9am. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's like, Uh, I I think it's just interesting why people obsess over it. I feel like um, I don't understand what what, what, it's like people are looking for things to be angry about and so you have these like you know pop purists that are like going through credits which I love by the way. I love people that care about the credits and care about all the details because I was that person when I was a kid. I knew every songwriter. I knew every producer. I knew every session drummer. I was obsessed with all of it. I mean, I didn't know them personally. I knew their names from the credits. Right. Um, I lived in, you know, I lived in the suburbs of Chicago. I didn't know anybody. But, um, the, I, I just, I find it interesting that people Want to have these conversations online about like, oh well, I don't think that that bitch actually wrote, and I don't think that so actually wrote. And again, most of these conversations are about female artists, uh, which I think, again, that there's. I think when people want to have these conversations, they should check their misogyny before going on like an online tirade.
2: You know, that's such a great point because I, yeah. I mean, when I look at you know, Beyonce has gotten that flack for for years. Um, I'm sure there's others. I, I'm a big Beyonce fan, so I know that that's been one of you know people's sticking points with her, yeah. or what, whatever. Um, I, I I didn't really think about you know how how female you know driven or female uh, female targeted all that hatred is. You don't really hear about, I mean, any of the major male acts. You know, J- Justin Timberlake, or I mean, we know like Ed yeah. Sheeran writes, we know Justin Bieber writes, but. It's always it's always the women who get dissected about, well, did she read, you know, is she sh- ghostwriters? Are you sure? It's it's I mean, yeah. it's interesting.
3: I mean, yeah, it's, it's interesting too because like there's definitely you know, the, the the this conversation definitely involves both genders and yet dudes never call get called out for it. So that to me um it definitely shows the misogyny because there are definitely male pop stars who, you know, will make changes to a song um, and then get their publishing. When a woman makes changes to a song and get her publishing, all of a sudden the internet's really pissed. Um, And so obviously I'm not going to name any names, but I find it funny that the dudes always get away
2: carefree. <laughs> uh, uh, you can't give us that tease, man. There's got to be somebody <laughs> who's... No, no, I'm
3: just, I, I don't even have it. It's just like it's the whole... It, it, it's a, it's a more of a cultural conversation. You know what I mean? I think that that... That's the that's the important thing to, to look at here.
1: Sure, sure, sure. Well, that kind of gets into your speech. Uh, I, I promise we're going to ask uh, more about the other songs to, that you also won awards for, just to, to ask about them. But uh, that's you, your speech. You win. You win this award, and uh, you weren't talking about the songs. You're talking about uh, gun violence uh, in this uh, country and uh, LGBTQ issues, and uh, you've you've called uh, the administration racist and, and homophobic. You can tell in this interview you're not you're not holding back. You're going to say what's on your mind. So it's just kind of interesting that you know you use that platform to uh, to talk about what's really much more important than but i'm asking how certain songs are written
3: i mean i well i thank you i think that's a compliment (laughs) Um, i uh yeah i just feel like um i've always been outspoken i've always you know taken uh you know art and activism as one very seriously you know when i was in high school i um directed and wrote uh a big multimedia performance. I went to an arts high school and I, I, I created this show with my friends. All my friends helped me and we made this show to raise money for HIV and AIDS charities in Chicago. And that was, you know, in 1997. Uh, and that show still happens. Well, the kids create their own show every year, but that tradition, that the AIDS benefit tradition at my high school still happens now, you know, 21, 22 years later. So, um, you know, ever since I was, <clears throat> a baby, uh, this stuff was really important to me. And I feel like if we're going to have, uh, any sort of privilege, you know, I identify as gender nonconforming, but I walk through the world with, you know, uh, you know, white, cis male privilege. Obviously I'm very obviously clear to most people, but, um, I still am, am, am a white cis male. And so, and by the way, for anyone who's listening who doesn't understand what I'm saying, uh, cis gendered means, um, that you identify with the gender, uh, the doctor told you you were when you were born. So cis, the root of cis means same and obviously there's transgender and the root of trans means transition and transcendence and transcendental and all those magical things. So, um, uh, you know, I have this privilege and now that I have success and now that success equals a platform and success equals money, uh, if I'm not paying that privilege forward and I'm not using the platform that I've been given, uh, then what's the point of being alive? (laughs) so um for me you know when I won the first year of BMI I gave a speech about how you know we need a lot more uh queer people uh involved in pop writing and that we need a lot more women involved in pop writing especially women of color uh is really really lacking in this business um and obviously you know my for many years my main collaborator was Julia Michaels I mean she would still be my main collaborator but she's traveling the world taking over the whole planet um uh but you know she's a young Latina woman, and I'm a middle-aged queer man, and we, uh, you know, have kicked ass. <laughs> so I was just trying to use that as an example uh, that it's not only it's not only what's right for society to make sure that you're opening doors, more diverse doors, and you're opening doors for people that don't have that happen for them because of the, the world's fucked up standards, but um, also because it's good for business. You know, uh, Julia was so amazing at writing songs for Selena because they were both the same age and going through a lot of the same stuff. And so when you have a young woman telling a young woman's story, it's gonna feel a lot more honest. it's gonna feel a lot more real. Uh the things that I've been through as a queer person, I think that I really understand understand the underdog perspective uh really, really well, which is I think where songs like Centuries and Believer come from. Um, you know, and so and then obviously this year I spoke about gun violence because uh, I think that that conversation that's been going on forever in this country is, is coming to some sort of head uh, hopefully coming to a head in a good way um, but I feel like you know the music business music affects culture so deeply right and culture is what actually changes politics so if we can push culture forward and if all the people that uh, have been given this amazing privilege to affect culture um, if we can push that culture forward Uh, In any way, I think we have a responsibility
1: to do it. You're talking about the energy that a young songwriter brings Are kind of seeing that with uh, we've talked a lot on the podcast about the uh, the Parkland Choir. They were on the Billboard Music Awards. When you see uh, some of those uh, kids, are you are you more hopeful than not that this young generation that really seems like they are maybe moving the needle on a lot of these a lot of these issues, maybe more than uh, than we've seen other uh, recent generations?
3: Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that we've hit a real turning point, and, and I, I always am hopeful because I think that that's a choice that you have to make. Um, but you have to be hopeful, and you still have to keep fighting. Because if you just say you're hopeful and then you don't fight, then like, what's the point of being hopeful? But um, but with these, you know, these kids in Parkland, and you know, kids all over the country now, with you know, the way that their social media can connect them and the way their social media can inform them, um, I think that we're in a really amazing time. Um, And I don't like to say that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, the the good thing about Trump is that, you know, it's really, you know, inspired people to get involved and, 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 you know, take, you know, take their democracy back. And that's, that for me is a hard thing because when you have, you know, immigrants in this country who are being locked up and then kicked out and their families being separated and you, you have, you know, hate crimes have increased. Uh, I have, might have the number wrong, but I'm pretty sure hate crimes have increased up like by 40. percent um, When all these horrible things are happening, I don't really want to say, "Oh, but at least people are waking up," because I would much rather you know families weren't being torn apart um, than people being more vocal on social media. Right. You know what I mean? Like, um, but there definitely is uh, a change that I feel, and uh, I think that's awesome.
2: Um, you know, I don't want to necessarily make you sort of the, the music spokesperson for this whole movement but you know a lot of artists and and even songwriters producers anybody in the industry um people have gotten some flack for people who have seen you know throughout the last 18 months you know even the election cycle a lot of things were going on and there were a lot of artists and and folks who stayed quiet on the sidelines didn't say anything you know obviously with your position as being such an advocate do you have anything what do you say to those people who are in these huge positions that, that choose not, you know, to shut off, not engage, not do anything. You know, how do you take that?
3: Well, I think it's a, it's a tricky question, right? And it's a tricky thing to talk about because if your dream was to just make music um, and that dream came true for you, um, does it really, does it mean that you have to, to to speak on everything and that you have to get involved in all these things? you know, I, I don't, I think people can only answer that for themselves. You know, mm. for me personally, given any success, I, I was doing this stuff before I had success. So now that I have success and I'm not a famous person, I just work with famous people. So, you know, I don't have a lot of the same pressures as someone, as someone, you know, I have, uh, what, 140,000 followers on Instagram. You know, there's someone who has hundred million, obviously they're, they have a lot more pressure on their celebrity than I do. I'm not even a celebrity. I'm just a songwriter. So it's hard to say, but I do think that when like it's like people's lives are being threatened or, you know, when there's a, a vice president who believes in electrocuting me, um, you know, I feel like we've got to, uh, you've got when, when, when a democracy is actually being threatened, I feel like if you don't speak up, you're fucking up. But, and again, that's just, how i feel you know i can't someone else's music dreams coming true they they need to deal with that the way that they need to do i would never i would never want to say that somebody um, should should do something just because their dreams came true
2: uh i will i'll say two lines out of that that i actually really enjoyed uh one is more of like an instagram bio i'm not famous i just work with famous people that's a great that's a great sentence <laughs> I, I, not to not to downplay what we just what we just mentioned but no, no, it's quite all right. I, when I heard that I was like that's that's catchy and then the second one if, if if you're if you're not speaking up you're fucking up is that what it was yes That's like a good sort of resistance t-shirt I feel like I could see that on a shirt somewhere
3: maybe I'll sell it for charity
2: we're getting
1: lyrics here. I think we're uh, we're almost co-writing here. There's some good <laughs> lines. Uh, yeah? Yeah.
3: Well, I think I said it. He just pointed it out. So I don't really <laughs> know if it's a full co-write.
1: Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> well, isn't that how co-writing works now? You you spark the idea, Trevor. You get a small percentage. There we,
2: yeah, I, I got the question that got the juices going. You know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, does this inspire you at all to write an out and out protest song or is it just not the way, uh, whether it's the artist you're working with or uh, it's just you hear something like this is America? Is that just not what you're compelled to write something that uh, socially minded?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely write stuff that socially minded. It's just about finding the right home for it or, you know, if I'm obviously with the artist, I think that I have I've written a couple things that are that socially minded that just haven't come out yet. Um, you know, I work with an amazing, amazing artist named Shia Diamond, uh, who is a trans woman of color, um, and she, you know, was is an, got into music through activism. Um, her voice is unbelievable. Her lyrics are amazing. But these songs that she would sing at protest rallies uh, are kind of how she got known um, in New York City, which is how I found her and, signed her that started working with her. So, through Shia, I get to do uh, a lot. Of, even if I don't write it, I'm just, I'm just executive producing and a and, and blah blah, blah. but I, I have co-written a lot in the album too. Um, with, through her projects we get to do a lot of um, a lot of addressing the bullshit which is really, really inspiring and very uh, fulfilling. So
1: pull me close. So why don't you pull me
3: close? Why don't you come on over? I'm
1: losing my mind just a little, so why don't you just meet me in the middle, in the middle, baby, why don't you just meet me in the
2: middle? Alright, and that was The Middle I'm by Zed, Marin Morris, and Gray, which is going to lead us into this week's flashback. We're going to take a trip back and look at The Middle. No, not that middle. Uh, another song called The Middle. The middle that goes a little more like this.
3: It it just takes some time, girl, a
2: Hopefully you were exposed to that song long before the Taylor Swift Apple commercial but if you weren't, that is a song called The Middle by Jimmy Eat World, which was a big hit back in 2002, right around this time, hitting number five on the Hot 100 this very week, 16 years ago, uh, reached a peak of number five, which actually is the same rank that this new middle, the triumvirate of Zed Mary Morris Gray, their song also getting to number five earlier this year. So look at that, two songs, same name. Uh, hitting the same rank on the Hot 100. Uh, Now, before, yeah, that's a little specific, so we're not going to quite do matching ranks, but we are going to do matching titles. Uh, So we're going to look down this week's Hot 100, some of the big hits of years past that share titles with songs on this week's chart. Uh, Before anyone gets too excited, no, there is no other song called Lucid Dreams, as far as we know there is no other song called um, IDGAF. Yeah. So we're going to start at the top of the chart, jump around, work our way down, and uh, do these according to this week's ranking order. So here we go. Uh, we'll start things off at number three, though, with uh, I Like It, Cardi B, Bad Bunny, J Balvin. Uh, pretty straightforward title. Now actually the highest charting song on the Hot 100 to be called I Like It. Uh, if you remember, not too long ago, back in 2010, there was a song out there by Enrique Iglesias featuring Pitbull, also called I Like It. That song got to number four. That was the beginning of like a little sort of mini resurgence for Enrique after a couple of the years. He had that song, and then he had Tonight I'm Loving You. Um, so definitely two big top five hits for him. In terms of I Like It, he had it for a while. Now he seeded that to another... uh sort of latin contingent right bad bunny jay balvin and the one the only cardi b
1: Go back to people who remember, who are old enough to remember, 1989. uh, This is the song that uh, had the record before Enrique Dino, that song, I Like It. It's number seven hit in the summer of 1989.
0: That's the way it has to be, because that's the way I like it. That's the way it has to be, because that's the way I like it.
1: So, uh, the middle uh, number eight uh, just below the top 10 number uh, 13 this week up for number 14 got to number 11 uh, if it hits the top 10 friends by marshmallow and marie would become the second top 10 hit called friends in the home 100s history uh, before dino in 1989 friends by jody wadley with eric b and rakim it was a number nine hit that year
2: spots below friends we're looking at a song called mine by bozzy i guess i'm pretty good with the 2010 year because we're gonna flash back to that once again there was a song uh by a current hot 100 hit maker taylor swift single by the name of mine which was the uh lead track ahead of speak now her third album that song got to number three debuted there on the hot 100 big song in the moment because that was taylor's lead track from the album after Fearless, so that is one album of the year at the Grammys. A lot of anticipation there. Speak now went on to sell a million plus copies in its first week and set Taylor up really for this huge superstar turn.
0: I can see-
1: Uh, all right, I'm going to go back to the 80s. Uh, number 19, Camila Cabello, our former number six hit, Never Be the Same. There's no way you know this one, Trevor. 1980 was the number 15 hit. Same title, different composition. Christopher Cross.
2: Um, if it's not sailing or Arthur's theme, then not. Nah.
1: I think I figured out uh, the secret to how Camila Cabello has hit singles. So Never Be the Same, originally a song by Christopher Cross. Before that, she had uh, obviously Havana. And remember we mentioned on the podcast that Kenny G had a song called Havana in the 90s. So uh, she takes titles by Yacht Rock Icons. You got it. That's, he cracked the code.
2: That is, I mean, it's like she lost all her powers. Gary figured out the trade secrets. It's like the Wizard of Oz when you, you know, Toto pulls the curtain back. Alright, a couple more. We'll flip it back to number 22 this week. Uh, Selena fans excited to see Back to You climbing up the chart. Maybe this one slipped under the radar a little bit. Louis Tomlinson with Digital Farm Animals. B.B. Rexa just last year called Back to You a top 40 hit.
3: Oh, you stress me out. You kill me. You drag me down. You fuck me up. We're all
1: Uh, right near Selena Gomez at number 24, Rockstar by Post Malone, featuring 21 Savage back up this week, former eight week number one. Uh, if we go back to 2007, it really was a rock song by Nickelback. Rockstar got to number six in 2007
0: on the Halloween.
2: Right, and we'll wrap things up here. Uh, kind of tie a nice little bow on it with the song Heaven by Kane Brown. Now, remember, we started this off we were talking about how The Middle, which is a, is a song that's a hit this year, it's also the same name as a song by Jimmy Eat World from 2002. Also that same year, DJ Sammy and Yanu having a hit with a song called Heaven, which hit number eight that August. That song actually a cover of course of another song called Heaven that one done by Brian Adams which conveniently hit number 1 this week back in 1985 Amen. Versions of Heaven, um, very different. So, I guess depending on, on what era you grew up in, you really
1: have an attachment maybe with one or the other. Or if you only know the 2002 version, uh, really two versions of that. There was the uh, the dance version and also what was called the candlelight mix. So, uh, they realized that they kind of hit both audiences by uh, having the ballad version, having the up tempo version. It really helped make it a hit all around.
2: Kind of probably, you know, if you knew the Adams version, maybe you like lean towards more of the AC version. Yeah. By the time 2002 rolled around, that'd be 17 years later, uh, and of course, you know, I mean, 2002 was a big year for some of that electro kind of dance music. Kylie Minogue, you know, had been pretty big around that time. Some of those, some of those, you know, music by Madonna. Some of those beats were still, still pretty banging. So got a hit out of that too. All right, so from Zedd, Marin Morris, Gray to Jimmy E. World to Brian Adams, there you go. Some of the songs on the Hot 100 uh both a past and present that share the same name
1: yeah it shows that uh you don't always have to come up with the most uh, original title you can pick something that's uh, worked and in you know, pop music there's sort of a, a language of its own where some of these phrases like back to you i like it just kind of come around you find uh, different ways to say it and uh, it's a whole new hint all over again i like that gary yeah. all right that's uh this week's billboard champion podcast uh, join us again next week we'll have more with justin tranter We'll look at the top 10 next week. We'll see if Drake is still number one. We'll see if uh, I Like It by Cardi B, Bad Bunny, and J Balvin can maybe get to number one. Uh, again, Juice World, Lucid Dreams is really uh, gaining strongly. Looks like a contender for number one next week. And uh, maybe Jay-Z and Beyonce could be in the top 10 as well. We'll find out.
2: Yeah, a lot of action coming our way. Also, don't forget about some songs that came out uh, the middle of last week that that could also make a dent. Um, in particular, Ariana Grande, Nicki Minaj, Bed. Maybe that makes its way on the Hot 100. There, they've pretty much been kind of like Jay Z and Beyonce, a pretty consistent team up over the past couple of years. So, uh, you know, maybe there's maybe there's like a uh, that's that's the new frontier. You know, you get your get
1: your singer rapper collaboration, and y'all ride or die to the end. All right, let's wrap with uh, one more title that uh, shared with a previous hit. And this is really just a way for me to play one more '80s song, Trevor, from uh, 1988. Uh, back at number 29 on the Hot 100 this week is "Wait" by Maroon Five white lion had a big hit at number seven in 1988 springtime totally different song called wait when hair bands were really big it's white lion wrapping things up and wait on the billboard choppy podcast